We'll be back in, in Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to just look at a single verse this morning. Hebrews 13 verse number 4. Hebrews 13 verse number 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. How do you view marriage this morning? What is your opinion or estimation of it? Well, I think it is obvious to anyone who hasn't been living under a rock that views about marriage have drastically shifted, even just over the last few years. This has been occurring really over a very long period of time, uh, but the changes have, have occurred kind of like compound interest works, you know. Uh, at, at first, it, it just seems very slow, and it seems very small, but then you start to get to a point, and things just start to rapidly take off, right? You, you've probably heard before the, the illustration of this, like if you were to take a, a penny doubled every day for 30 days, and that doesn't sound like much. And, and the old trick is to ask somebody, would you rather have $1,000 or a penny doubled every day for 30 days? And most people will obviously say $1,000 if they don't understand how compounding works. Uh, but if you do that, a penny doubled every day, uh, by the end of 30 days, you'll have over $5 million, which is amazing. It's, it's mind-blowing. But, but the thing that you see, and you could, if you don't believe me, Google that afterwards. It is true. Uh, and, and what you'll see is that for the first 10, 15 days, it's not much money, right? It's just one cent turns into two cents, turns into four cents, turns into eight cents. And so very, seems like very small amount, but then you get to a certain point and, and things start uh, doubling when you get to a thousand dollars and it turns into two thousand dollars and four thousand and eight thousand and sixteen thousand. It goes very, very rapidly. And that's kind of the way that changes in marriage have occurred. Uh, at the beginning, the changes seem small and insignificant, and then you get to a certain point, and that's why we, we turn around and we think, it's only been five years, and, and people's opinions and people's views on marriage have radically shifted, it seems like, overnight, but it hasn't happened overnight. It's been happening a little bit at a time for a very long time period of time. And I'm sure you've heard the statistics and uh, just highlight some of them. Things like a high divorce rate, roughly 50% of marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. Researchers estimate that 41% of all first-time marriages and in divorce, 60% of second marriages in divorce, 73% of all third marriages in in divorce. And here recently, the divorce rates have declined slightly, kind of steadied out and declined a little bit, but that's really no uh, evidence of any kind of change in, in a better way. That, that's simply the fact that people are no longer even getting married, right? There's uh, an aversion to even getting married. Cohabitating is up 29% just from the years of 2007 to the year of 2016, up 29%. Roughly all or half of those who co cohabitate or live together before marriage 
uh, are younger than 35 years old. And so it seems to be a trend for the future. And yet the, the, the category of people uh, in which cohabitating is rising most quickly are those ages 50 and older. So it seems like they are joining in the fun. The median age for people getting married is 30 years old for men, 28 years old for women. And again, that doesn't come because people have a great respect for marriage and because they, they think, well, I really want to get this right. And certainly we would say if in God's providence, uh, the Lord doesn't lead you to get married at all. Like singleness is, is a good thing. Uh, that there's nothing wrong with that. And if the Lord doesn't lead you to a godly spouse until later in your life, then that is a good thing. But those numbers reflect people who are simply living like they're married without getting married. Uh, it reflects a n notion that commitment to marriage is really unnecessary for fulfilling sexual relations and that marriage is often a hindrance to true love. And so why would I get married? Unsurprisingly, these trends, those numbers reflect uh, a changing and shifting sentiment within our culture. Most Americans find it unacceptable, they find it acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they don't plan to get married. Roughly half of Americans say that couples who live together first, before they get married, have a better chance of having a successful marriage, although the numbers are exactly the opposite of that. Those uh, who do not live together before they get married actually have a higher rate of staying together than those who do live together. And of course, uh, there's, there's the obvious things like same-sex marriage now, which is culturally accepted and even legalized. We know Obergefell decision in 2015 by the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. But, but that was really just the icing on the cake. That was at the end of this sense in which all of culture is just accepting this as normal and good and, and right. Certainly, same-sex marriage has the backing of the rich and powerful. All the power structures of our society, government, large corporations, media, academic institutions, are ever pushing to secure unequivocal, unanimous support for same-sex marriage. It isn't enough to just simply say, well, we'll let them have what they want and, and, and uh, we'll just kind of have our own views over here. Uh, people in our world, in our culture now, are pushing, they want everyone to accept it un unequivocally and unanimously. And then there is sex outside of marriage, which kind of goes along with the whole cohabitating numbers, but fornication, as the Bible calls it, sometimes it's good to just use uh, good old-fashioned words like that to rem remind ourselves that sin is still sin. It doesn't even seem to be a question anymore, does it? We're far past the stage which many people at least pretended to disapprove. Uh, we're now at a place where it's assumed and even encouraged and celebrated by the vast majority, right? That's just the way that it is. And, and we can see, rather than think about percentages and numbers of people who are, are, are claiming to do that, you just look at the numbers of things like sexually transmitted diseases, which are skyrocketing. I would encourage you to research. It's mind-blowing. As I just started to look at those numbers, I'd heard things before, and you actually just look at it, and, and it is uh, unbelievable. The, the three most common sexually transmitted diseases, or STIs as now some people are calling them, sexually transmitted infections, they have risen by 67, 
76 and 21 percent. That's astounding. Millions of Americans now have a sexually transmitted disease. And then there's the issue of adultery. And I don't have numbers to share with this category, but the astute observer of our culture knows that this sin is also gaining momentum just like all of these other sins. With the relative ease and anonymity that social media and various dating and hookup platforms provide, we are safe to assume, I think, that those instances of adultery are on the rise as well. And it's certainly, in in popular culture, uh, presented as something that is good within TV and music and books and and, and movies and, and so forth. The way I see it presented so often is that illicit relationships outside of marriage are normal, especially for men. That's just the way that men are. And, and now the, sort of the picture that is given is, hey, women, you should just join in, in this as well, right? Uh, your, your marriage is dead. You're not as happy. You're, you're kind of a slave to this marriage. And why not just enjoy this relationship out of marriage? It, it pictures and, and presents a, an idea of adultery that is, is liberating. That's the way Satan always does, isn't it? He takes sin and he says, takes something that, that actually brings death and enslavement and says, hey, this is liberation. That's the way it's presented in our culture. As well, pornography is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I think nothing more needs to be said about that, but, it, but it's all, all around us. And let me just be blunt, uh, even to us, if you are assuming here this morning that your children and that your marriage is safe from this blight, you are being naive. You're being naive. Women, most of you, I think, want to believe that your husband is not looking at porn. And I will just say this, most of your husbands are happy that you want to believe that he's not looking at porn. You need to not be naive. Parents, most of you probably want to assume that your children have not or are not looking at or sending and receiving sexually explicit material, and your children are glad for you to assume that. Well, behind all of these numbers that we've just tried to lay out, And all those trends and and anecdotal observations behind all of that is sin. The sin of rejecting God's creation design and rejecting the clear commands of Scripture, including the command here that marriage ought to be held in honor. Now, when we speak of a topic like this, it's very easy to sort of adopt a self-righteous and condemning tone as if we would never do anything like that. We're the righteous people. We're the people who have it all together. We're, we're the ones who don't sin in this way. And let's just talk about the world out there and how messed up the world is and how evil the world is. But the truth is that we are all lawbreakers in need of God's grace, that we are not any different from the world. In fact, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us once walked according to the course of this world and that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Brothers and sisters, we cannot stand up on some kind of level as if uh, we are sinless or blameless in this area. 
I stand preaching to you this morning on this topic and this command, and you sit listening to this sermon as those who are guilty in various ways of dishonoring marriage. And when we hear things, these numbers, we shouldn't think about those wicked people out there But if God's grace is at work in our heart, we're going to be thinking like the Apostle Paul, O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, let's look at this text this morning here. It says that marriage is honorable. There's some question about how to translate it. Is it a statement? Some of you may have the King James. uh, And in the King James, it is a statement uh, that marriage is honorable. In modern translations, it's often translated with sort of the force of a command. Let marriage be held in honor. So, which is it? Is it a statement of fact or is it a command? Well, I I think, I I, I tend to look at it as probably a command, uh, but really either way is the same thing. If it's a statement of fact, then the command is entailed in the statement. If marriage is honorable, then certainly we ought to hold it in honor, right? And, and if it's a command that we ought to hold marriage in honor, then it, it follows then that marriage is honorable. So either way, let's just consider this. First of all, and most of our time this morning, I want to consider about the fact that marriage is honorable. And then toward the end of the sermon with some application, we, we will think about how we might honor. How do we hold it in honor? So let's consider, first of all, the meaning, the meaning of this. What does it mean that marriage is honorable? Well, that word honorable is the word that could be translated precious, costly, of great price, dear, valuable, honored, esteemed, respected. In fact, most often this word in the New Testament is actually translated as precious. So 1 Corinthians 3.12 says, Now if anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that word precious stones is the same word here. Or it's used in 1 Peter uh, 1.19 to speak of the precious blood of Christ. And in 2 Peter 1, it speaks of the precious and very great promises of God. So this word then refers to something that it has an innate value or beauty and therefore is dear. It is precious to a person. And as such, then it's, it's held in honor. It's esteemed. It's respected because of the worth that it has or the beauty that it has. And so William Hendrickson, in, in speaking about this verse that we ought to hold marriage in honor, he says it could be translated this way. And I think this is a, a good way for us to think about this. Let marriage be precious to all of you. Let marriage be precious to all of you. And I hope this morning that's uh, what we will be led to do. Let's, let's consider, secondly, the source of this honor. Consider the source of this honor. Why is marriage precious? Why is it honorable? What what innate value or beauty does marriage have that would then make it incumbent upon us to hold marriage in honor, to to respect it? Well, the honor comes from the fact that, that it comes to us as a gift from God. Marriage is part of God's good design of creation. You see, God didn't just create man and woman. When you go back and read Genesis, he didn't just create a man and a woman. He also created the institution of marriage. 
He said that it was not good for man to be alone, and he created Eve, but he didn't just stop by saying, hey, now here's a woman. He, he, he actually instituted marriage. In Genesis 2, 24, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see, he makes a statement here that's bigger than just Adam and Eve. He notices Adam is alone and he says, this isn't good. And so he creates Eve and he brings Eve to Adam. But after that's all said and done, he makes a bigger statement than just about Adam and Eve. And he says, therefore, because of this, a man, any man, mankind shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In other words, when he brought them together, he was instituting uh, marriage. This means then that marriage is part of God's original good design of creation. In Genesis 1.31, after God had finished everything, you know, each day when he, when he completes his work, he looks at it and he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the very end, when he completes all of his creating, creative work, he looks at all that he has made and he says, it is very good. And when he says it is very good, He's talking not only about Adam and Eve and everything else that he made, but he's also talking about the institution of marriage. It is very good. That's, that stands in radical contrast to our culture today, which, which has sort of a degraded view of marriage as if it's something bad or something to be avoided. God made marriage, and he looked at marriage, and he said, marriage is very good. Now, this is an important distinction to make when I say that, that marriage is part of God's original good design of creation because when we go to the law, God gives all kinds of regulations about things, but, but he does so based on the fact that man has already sinned against him. And so some ways, when we look to the Old Testament law, we see God kind of regulating sinful humanity, making, making concessions and trying to regulate the sinfulness of humanity. This is exactly the point that Jesus makes about divorce. When you go back to the Old Testament law and you see the, the, the laws about divorce, the people come to Jesus and they say, look, Jesus, you've just said that, that people should not be divorced, that, that, that marriage should be for a lifetime. And yet in the law, God allowed for divorce. And listen to Jesus' response to him. They said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, there were things in the law that were sort of a regulation of sinful behavior. God trying to bring some measure of justice, some measure of equity within sinful humanity. Uh, but, but when we want to look at how God designed this world, what was God's intention, his original intention, intention we need to go back to uh, the creation order. And when we go back there, and we see marriage as part of God's good design. Marriage is not a concession. Marriage is not an afterthought. It's not, well, i got to fix this problem later on down the road. When God was creating the world and structuring it according to all the beauty that he wanted to infuse, all the goodness that he wanted to put into this created realm, marriage was his idea, and he created it 
and it was very good. It's not just simply a necessary evil or something to be indifferent about. I mean, we could think of several reasons why, why marriage is good and beautiful, why God would create marriage. Uh, first of all, it, it meets mankind's great relational need. When he looked at Adam uh, after he had created man, this was the first time that God says anything about his creation other than it was good. And when he creates Adam and Adam's by himself, he looks at the man and he says, this is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And he then tailors and, and makes a companion for Adam that is, the Bible says, fit for him. It's tailored for his need. And when Adam sees Eve after God has created his wife, Adam says, whoa. He, really, in, in the Hebrew, it's kind of an exclamation that would have that kind of force. He says, at last, in, in uh, the ESV that I read, at last, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He had looked at all of the other creation, and, and he sees all of the other animals, and there, there's some maybe level of companionship there, but, but there's no one like him. But now, there's this woman who meets his need, and he says, at last. God made marriage to meet our relational need. There are other relationships, certainly there are, but this is the chief way that this relational need is met. Secondly, marriage is precious because it reflects God's triune image. God created man in his own image, and we know that God is three in one, three persons and one being, and nowhere else in creation do we see anything that reflects that sort of order. But when we come to man and woman, he says of them, when he brings them together, the two shall become one. And in at least an imperfect and in a partial way, we get some picture of God's relational image. Thirdly, marriage is good because it pictures God's, God's love for his people. In Ephesians chapter 5, it speaks of the church as being the bride of Christ and of Christ laying down his life for his bride, for the church. And, and what a wonderful picture of the gospel marriage is. And it's important that we see in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that, that uh, it's not the other way around. Sometimes we think of, you know, the gospel kind of points us to this beautiful picture in marriage. No, no, the picture of marriage points us to the greater reality, which is the, the, the gospel. Well... There's beauty in marriage. There's an honor in marriage because God created it and because it's good and it was part of his good intention, his good design, and there were things that he was wanting to communicate to us. But what we've seen in our world is the rejection of this beauty. It's undeniable that within marriage there have been great atrocities. Not, there, there have been, uh, a, there's been a lot of abuse and a lot of betrayal. There have been people who have heard and been hurt and lives have been destroyed. And, and many people in our day and time kind of want to place the blame on marriage as an institution. You know, when you just talk to younger people who have been through divorces, the divorce of their parents, and, and have seen abuse on different levels, a lot of people have sort of a low, degraded view of marriage. I never want to get married because I've just seen the hell that my parents went through, and I don't want that, right? And, and so they place the blame on marriage 
rather than the sinful people in the marriage. The, you see, the problem uh, with marriage is not marriage. The problem with marriage is the people who are in the marriage. Well, because of this, there, there's a prevailing sentiment in our day and time that, that we really ought to just get rid of marriage. There are even academics and people who are teaching the view that marriage is sort of a vestige of, of a past era of human history and that we should move on from marriage. Let, let's just go into some other sort of form of, uh, of forming families and societies. Let's just forget about marriage altogether. If marriage uh, is simply part of the evolutionary process, some people long time, a long time ago decided, hey, we should have some kind of commitment to one person, monogamy, and, and we, should, we should take vows, and that's the way that we should do it. If their view of, of the world is, is one that's naturalistic and evolutionary, uh, then marriage really has no honor. It is just sort of a form of getting along that some people came up with a long time ago, and, and there's no beauty, there's no honor in it. We can just chuck it out the window. Let's make up some different kind of arrangement, right? But, but what this would teach us is that there is an innate beauty. There, there is an innate goodness in marriage, that marriage is not just simply a, a pragmatic thing. There's an innate value in it because God has created it. You might think this morning that maybe I'm just kind of on a soapbox when I talk about academics and, and people uh, thinking about sort of reforming society. But listen, this isn't just a few elites in some ivory tower who, who are making the case for this. This is not just an intellectual discussion uh, being had among a few ultra-liberal elites this notion that I'm, I'm telling you, and maybe you've been insulated from it, but this notion is permeating our society. As I mentioned earlier, all the power structures within society, government, powerful corporations, media, academic institutions, they are all making a concerted effort to redesign the family. And guess what? They are succeeding. They, they are being successful in doing that. And, and too often, we're just going along with it, happy to join in. Satan wants to destroy the work of God. Satan is opposed to all that is good, and he's opposed to marriage and family because of that. And listen, when the world, orchestrated by Satan, is trying to, trying to redefine marriage in, in all kinds of ways. I'm not just talking about same-sex marriage. There, there's all kinds of ways that, that marriage and family is being uh, redefined. He's not doing that. Satan is not doing that in order to give us something better. That's what he always holds out and promises. There's some other way. There's a better way if you'll just go this way. But, but what he promises as liberation is just greater and greater levels of slavery. It's no accident that as marriage and family break down, levels of loneliness are skyrocketing, suicide levels are rising. Satan is taking away from us something that is precious. Marriage is precious. It is honorable. And he's giving us something that will produce death and destruction. Thirdly, this morning then, let's consider who should have this regard for marriage. Let marriage be held in honor, it says, by all. Who is that all, among all? Who is the all? Well, it's clear to us, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to take another drink of water here. I try not to do that, but 
it's it's hotter in here today and it's dry so there we go I feel very self-conscious about that but uh, we'll move on and things will be all right who is it that should hold marriage in honor well it's clear is it not marriage is not going to be honored in the world the world is not going to hold marriage as something precious. Again, the world thinks of it as just sort of a maybe a, a way that humans have structured themselves, but but nothing of innate value or good goodness or beauty. And and they have no desire at this point in history, if they ever did at all, to hold marriage in honor. Well, then the among all must be among all of God's. People. Now, I would say this, all the world is, is accountable to God's holy standard. All people should hold marriage in honor. There's an expectation by God to his creatures that they would be obedient to the law that's been written within their heart. Uh, but, but we know that they are in rebellion against that. And, and so it isn't likely that they're going to submit to God's law. In fact, Paul says that the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, cannot submit to the law of God. And, and, and they have no desire to hold marriage in honor. And so if anyone is going to hold marriage in honor, it's going to be God's people. It's going to be those who love the Lord, believers, Christians. We are the ones who should treat marriage as something that is precious. This is God's word. You understand the Bible is written to God's people first and foremost. And so this command is to us. So we don't sit back here, church, do we? And just say, yeah, you people out there, you should hold marriage in honor. No, no, no. We should be looking inwardly. We should be thinking about ourselves and, and recognizing that unfortunately we as Christians have fallen short in far too many ways and far too often in holding marriage as something that is precious, that's an honorable gift given to us by our Creator. Here, here's what I would characterize. When, when we think about the way the world is going and how marriage is sort, sort of uh, disrespected and held in such a low, degraded view, I would characterize Christians' response to that as sort of a state, uh, the sort of, to that state of affairs, rather, as sort of a, a whining and complaining and criticizing and sort of a judgmental attitude toward the world, and yet, all too often, complicit in it. So we sit back and we complain about the world and we complain about how, how the divorce rates and we, we complain about the redefinition of marriage and we complain about fornication and we sort of whine about it and we have sort of a critical, judgmental attitude toward the world who are not submitting to the law of God. And yet all too often, we're complicit. Even if it's quiet, we're, we're complicit in many of those things. We need to recognize that we are not innocent. We are not without sin in this act of dishonoring marriage. All of us have contributed to the current state of affairs. The divorce rates are just as high in the church among God's people as it is in the world. Pornography use is rampant within the church. Adultery and fornication are prevalent within the church not just in the world, in the church, among God's people. It's, it's prevalent. And, and because so many churches just want to grow, 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 numbers, 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 we want to just have more people, the, the church isn't even dealing with it. The church is just silent about it. 
Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 5, he condemned the Corinthian church for that very thing. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant, he says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He, he issues this injunction that church discipline would be carried out on the person who is in unrepentant sexual sin. And I say unrepentant because it's, it's a person who's refusing to give this up. But all too often in our day and age, the, the church doesn't want to lose anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And we certainly don't want to hurt the attendance numbers. And so we're not going to question anything about sexual immorality. We're not going to get involved in any of those kinds of discussions. That's just a personal matter. It isn't a personal matter. It's a matter that needs to be dealt with within the church. We should stop, I think, focusing our efforts. Not that we give up our efforts, but we should stop, Christians, we should stop focusing our efforts on changing the world and work to change ourselves, first of all. The world is not likely to heed God's commands to hold marriage as precious. So if it's to be done at all, it will be done by God's people. We should save our most zealous efforts for our own personal holiness in this area. I just see so many Christians all worked up about how sinful the world is, and yet we're right there with them. And there's hypocrisy, and there are things happening, and, 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 and it's almost as if we as Christians sometimes are just completely blind we're just completely blind to the fact. We're so angry about the redefinition of marriage, and yet we're over here looking at pornography and indulging in, in, in kind of sinful behavior over here. Do you not see, brothers and sisters, that the two things are tied together? Do, do you not see that, that we're breaking the same fundamental command? And it reminds me of what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse. O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge, you the judge, practice the very same things. And that, I think, in this area is just all too true for those who profess to be followers of Christ. We're judging the world, we're condemning the world, we're talking about the world, and we're feeling very self-righteous, and then we are doing the very same things things marriage needs to be held in honor it's not going to be held in honor in the world it ought to be held in honor among the church so marriage is honorable but let's see how we are to hold marriage as precious what what can we do then as we bring this to a close this morning what what should we do that would hold marriage in honor. Let me suggest a few ways by way of application. First, we need to refuse to capitulate to the world's efforts to redefine and deregulate marriage. We may be among the few who are continuing to look to God's created order, to God's word to define and regulate marriage, but, but even as the old song says, if none go with me, still I will follow. We need to be 
those who will follow. The, the world is changing. I mean, just so rapidly as I began this morning. It's, it's happening, really, it almost seems year by year and month by month. We take another step. There, the, 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 the views of things are changing so very quickly. Church, we need to be committed to stay right where God's word is and to be good to, to, to invite the scorn of the world to, to for people to think that we're just sort of crazy or, or that we're even, even malicious, that we're evil because we won't go along with how the world is dishonoring marriage. We need to be ready and be committed all the way to hold God's word. We need, uh, we need to stand as a church. Churches abound. In our day and time, churches abound that have pretended that sin against God's holy design for marriage and sexuality are no big deal. And it shouldn't surprise us then that these very churches who have been acting as if God's design for marriage is no big deal uh, and, and staying quiet about sin within their own ranks, it is no wonder then that churches are all too ready now to just accept what the world says in terms of redefining marriage. There are churches and people who are professing to be Christians who are saying, let's just actually, you know, rather than just be quiet about these sins, let's just sort of affirm that they're good things, that it's okay, that, that what God said back there then, that was just sort of cultural and times have changed and, and we need to grow and we need to evolve. There are churches and pastors and teachers who are doing that, but we don't need to do that here. We need to hold marriage in honor. Not only as a church, but as families. I would encourage you, you Parents need to be teaching your children about these things. You don't need to expect that what they're hearing on television, that, that what they're hearing and, and seeing when they're watching movies and when they're on Netflix and uh, what, what they're hearing in school and from their friends, that, that that's going to fit with your view of marriage. It isn't. If you are not teaching and training your children about the beauty of marriage and what God's design for marriage is, they will not believe it. They're going to be, they're hearing all kinds of other things. And unless you're combating that, they're going to believe what they're receiving. They're going to believe and be shaped by the voices in our culture. So we need to refuse to capitulate to the world's efforts to redefine and deregulate marriage. Secondly, we need to repent of our hypocrisy if we are acting privately in ways that would desecrate marriage that would treat it as something contemptible rather than something that is precious then we're no better than the world look at the warning given in verse number four let ma let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral there's a warning there. And the world, the world needs to hear that warning, but they're not going to listen to it. You and I, as the people of God, though, we should hear that warning and it should lead to a holy reverence and to a fear of God. And we ought to be acting in that way. And if we are acting in that way, if we are recognizing that God indeed will judge the sexually immoral, then we need to be repenting of ways in which we have been sexually immoral. We need to repent of our hypocrisy. Number three, we need to seek to model God's good design for marriage. We need to seek to model God's good 
design for marriage. You know, so much of the present corruption uh, of marriage is because in the past, those who professed to be living by God's model for marriage presented a picture of marriage that was hypocritical and unappealing at best, and it was downright demonic at worst. In other words, if you go back a generation or two, there were people who said, one man, one woman for a lifetime. And yet there was all kinds of secret sin going on underneath that veneer of submitting to God's law. One man, one woman, we, we believe in the traditional view of, of marriage. There was abuse, uh, there was unfaithfulness, uh, there, there was all kinds of sin against spouses, uh, hatred within marriage, so that many of the people now who are saying, we should just get rid of marriage, we don't need marriage, I don't want to be married, I can live together with people. The, the reason that so many people from a human standpoint are where they are now is because the sin of the people back here, many of them who profess to be Christians, who said we believe in traditional marriage, but the, the picture of marriage that they presented was not something beautiful. We, we say hold marriage in honor. Who would hold marriage in honor if, if that's what marriage really was? If that's what it was supposed to be like? So we as Christians need to live in faithfulness to God's design not only in terms of the, the, the definition of marriage but in all of the beauty that marriage is meant to represent. And our minds should go to passages like Ephesians chapter 5 where it calls on husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. A, a lot of sons and daughters have thought, I want no part of marriage because my dad treated my mom like dirt and she stuck with him for 50 years and he was a lousy husband and I don't want that, right? And, and in some sense, that's their own sin, but you, you hardly can't blame them when, when they see how disrespectful and how hateful marriages could be. So if we're going to hold to this traditional view of marriage, if we're going to honor marriage, it's more than just simply saying we're, we're going to vote to, uh, and try to redefine marriage constitutionally and legally to, to keep the traditional view of marriage. It's got to be something more robust than that. It's got to be us living in such a way that the world will see marriage as something beautiful and something good within the church. They'll look at that and they'll say, that is light, that is goodness, that is beauty. And we need to live in such a way to model God's good designs. Husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to their husbands as, as leaders. All of us, be, be kind to one another. Be gracious to one another. Meet one another's needs. Uh, communicate with one another. In the past, people followed God's definition of marriage. One man and one woman for a lifetime, but there was abuse unfaithfulness, unkindness, and none of that should be among us. We need to be a light in this dark world, but we'll not make a case for the beauty of marriage if all of our marriages are full of sin. Let us cry then this morning out to God for the grace that we need to treat marriage as pre precious. Let marriage be precious to all of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you, O oh God, creator of all that is good, that you created marriage. 
Forgive us for the ways in which we have disrespected and dishonored marriage even in our own minds. Forgive us of all the ways that we have not lived faithfully with our spouses and the ways that we have not presented marriage as something beautiful and good. Forgive us, O God, of all the ways that we have dishonored marriage. We pray that you would give us grace to turn from that and to live in faithfulness in this area. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.